are listening to the podcast of the White Church at the Elk River YMCA in Minnesota. Our mission is to seek Jesus, connect together, and share his love. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. Then Joshua, son of Josedach, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and his associates began to build the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it, in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening sacrifices. Then, in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the festival of tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. After that, they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices, and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred festivals of the Lord, as well as those brought as freewill offerings to the Lord. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters and gave food and drink and olive oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre so that they would bring cedar logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa as authorized by Cyrus, king of Persia. In the second month of the second year after their arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Josedak, and the rest of the people, the priests and the Levites, and all who had returned from the captivity to Jerusalem, began the work. They appointed Levites 20 years old and older to supervise the building of the house of the Lord. Joshua and his sons and brothers, and Kadmiel and his sons, descendants of Hodaviah, and the sons of Henadad and their sons and brothers, all Levites, joined together in supervising those working on the house of God. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord, as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving they sang to the Lord, He is good, his love toward Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping, because the people made so much noise, and the sound was heard far away. Thank you, Laura. Well, I have a question for you. I'm going to show you a few items. This is kind of like an association game. I'm going to go through a few things, and I'm going to ask you, what do these things have in common? Monday morning, a blank canvas, a new box of Legos, an empty house, the first day of the semester. What do these things have in common? I heard something. Fresh start. Gave it away on the cover of the bulletin. Did you know that there is something that psychologists actually call the fresh start effect? Special occasions or temporal landmarks such as a new year cause people to reflect on their lives in a big picture way, which in turn inspires them to set goals for better behavior. 
This phenomenon is referred to as the fresh start effect. The definition, according to a psychologist, is this. According to this effect, people are more likely to take action towards a goal after temporal landmarks that represent new beginnings. In other words, it's easier to create and make new habits and life changes after a natural transition point. A new beginning might be prompted by a meaningful birthday. We had a couple of birthdays on staff this week, Michelle and Tara. And we have a changing of seasons that can prompt this fresh start effect. There can be a significant life event or even the first day of a new month. And it provides a sense that there is a clean slate. And one of the most obvious of these landmarks is January 1st, the new year. We all have ways that we think we would like to improve our lives, eat healthier, exercise more, save more money. And marketing companies capitalize on this new year idea. You might have seen these ads like, new year, new you. And researchers have found that in January, there is a spike in almost every self-improvement activity. While it's estimated that half of New Year's resolutions fail by the end of January, research has also shown that there are, for example, more Google searches for the word diet on the first day of the month, any time of the year. Isn't that interesting? There is this fresh start effect that happens. Perhaps you're here this morning, and even though you might not call them resolutions, there is some desire for change as you enter this new year. Something that you are longing for. Maybe it's a situation that you want to be different. Maybe you want to get back on track with going to the gym. Why memberships are highly recommended. Maybe there's a project or a dream that you have been putting on hold and you have decided that 2020 is the year that you're going to step out of your comfort zone and step toward something new. Perhaps you've been coming to the marriage nights and you have been inspired to be more intentional about your marriage. Maybe you took financial peace last January and you're thinking, I should really get back to those budget meetings. Maybe you have said, I am ready for this week this month, this year, to be different. Today, I'm grateful for these landmarks in my weeks and months and years that create this fresh start effect. Nothing crazy happened this past week, but I'm just ready for Monday because I just like fell behind. Does anyone else have weeks like that? You're like, I'm ready for Monday to come. There are times when we each long for a fresh start chance to do something new or do over in relationship, the people we read about in Ezra are no different. They had been waiting for this fresh start for a long time. If you're not already there, join me in Ezra chapter 3. And if you're joining us for the first time in this series, you might be thinking, what is Ezra even about? I was with some family last weekend, and the six-year-old Callie was telling us everything she knew about Nehemiah, which was pretty impressive. But then I asked her, I said, well, I'm preaching on Ezra next week. And she looked at me and she said, what's an Ezra? And I can relate. Maybe you're feeling that way this morning. You're like, what's an Ezra? There is incredible life application in this book. And I think you're going to see some of that this morning as we step into the story in order to get there, to understand what is happening, you need to give some context and background. So, 
there's this king with an awesome name, Nebuchadnezzar, and he destroyed the city of Jerusalem. He was not an awesome king, even though he had an awesome name. Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the city of Jerusalem in around 587, 586 BC. And what I was reminded of is that it's so important to remember that the events that we read about in the Bible are historical and they happen to real people in real places. There's the map Bjorn showed us last week as we started the book. Um, I encourage you to go back and listen to that podcast if you missed it last week. The location is modern-day Iran. And in an article from August 13th, 2019 in Newsweek, a history professor at UNC Charlotte wrote, Nebuchadnezzar is not just a character taken from the Bible. The actual site of Babylon with its palaces and temples has been excavated by archaeologists in Iraq, and inscriptions mentioning Nebuchadnezzar are known, notably an inscribed cylinder object recording his building works at Babylon in the collection of the British Museum in London. Okay, so what is all that saying? Archaeologists have found evidence of the destruction of Jerusalem. And just last summer, they were doing a dig and found this battle weapon, a Scythian arrowhead, and this piece of jewelry. They're not sure it could be like a dallion on a necklace or an earring. These were found in the ashy layer that is dated to the time when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the city, which is pretty incredible. So when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem, a large portion of the Jewish people were taken into captivity, exiled into Babylon. And this was nearly a four-month journey. There was kind of a shorter way, it was about 500 miles, and there was a 900-mile way that most of the large groups like the caravans had to travel. So these people are 900 miles from home, four months away, leaving everything that they once knew. Their city, their home, had been destroyed. And about 70 years later, God intervenes and he moves the heart of young Persian King Cyrus, who had taken over the Babylonian Empire. And the book of Ezra really tells the story of this fresh start for the people of Israel. It talks about how they return to their home and they begin to rebuild their lives. And while the people are ready to be settled again, ready for a fresh start in a new place, what they are longing for most is the presence of God. Before they were sent into exile, before they were shipped off, one of the most tragic losses in Jerusalem was that Nebuchadnezzar, as he destroyed the city, he also destroyed the first temple, the temple that Solomon built. And it was beautiful and majestic, and it had taken seven years to complete. For nearly 400 years, it had stood in Jerusalem next to the royal palace. However, during that time, you read through the Old Testament there were foreign objects and practices brought in. It wasn't all this perfect picture of life in the temple. You might remember King Josiah found the book of the law. The, the word of God had been lost in the temple. It had its ups and downs, and yet the temple remained one of the most significant places in the world to these Israelites because it was there that the very presence of God dwelt on the Ark of the Covenant this box, the ark that held the Ten Commandments. 
it was in the most holy place in the temple. It's also called the Holy of Holies. And there was this curtain. And there was only one time a year when the priest could go in and offer sacrifices to ask for forgiveness for the sins of himself, the priest, and also everyone. So the priest would go in once a year, offer sacrifices in the Holy of Holies, and it was there that the presence of God dwelt. And when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the city, the temple was destroyed. The Ark of the Covenant was lost, and the people were left longing for the presence of God. And it wasn't just the loss of a building or a structure. Without being able to offer sacrifices at the temple, the Jewish people had lost their assurance that the sins had been forgiven. This is like really significant to these people that the temple had been lost. And one commentator said that their whole religious life was disorganized by it. Imagine feeling so lost. Here you are in a different land. You're not sure what to do about your sin because there's no place to offer sacrifices. And you're longing for the presence of God. And now you have returned to your home And there is ground with rubble, where your temple once stood. So it makes sense then, in knowing all of that, that in Ezra 3, the people gather together and return to the site of the temple to do first things first. This is not haphazard that they got together, but it is a significant place in the story as we understand what has just happened in Israelite history. The people gather together with a unified purpose. They gather to return to the place of God's presence and do an act of worship that had ceased for 70 years. It says, when the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. And then the priests began their work again. With this sense of unity and purpose, the altar is rebuilt on the same site where they worshipped so many years ago. They had a fresh start, and they began to reinstitute the festivals that had been lost and the regular sacrifices that had stopped, even though they had not laid the foundation for the temple yet. This was the most important thing. They realized that They couldn't build a temple right away, but they could build an altar and begin offering sacrifices to ask for forgiveness of their sin. Can you imagine living with the guilt of your mistakes for years, maybe your whole life, and not being able to obey the sacrificial offerings the way the Lord had commanded? We see in this passage a united effort obedience to God's word, and courage in the face of opposition. And then, second part that Laura read for us this morning, second thing second, when God moved Cyrus's heart, not only did he let the people return home, he also authorized the rebuilding of a second temple. The people began to collect resources, wood, and materials to give people jobs, masons, and carpenters, and these 20-something-year-old Levites who are in charge of the operation. And the builders laid the foundation of this new temple. 
remember my parents built our house in Wisconsin, and I remember driving up the hill, and after months of an empty lot sitting there, to see that the foundation had been laid, the concrete was in place, we were so excited. I can't imagine how these people must have been feeling. It was time for a celebration. They had a party for the Lord when this foundation was laid. There were symbols and fancy clothes, and the people sang out in thanksgiving to the Lord. He is good. His love toward Israel endures forever. The people are shouting and singing overjoyed because they once again have the assurance that their sins are forgiven and the Lord has not forsaken them. And while this is going on, weeping begins. The older generation remembered that former glory of Solomon's temple, that place of the Holy of Holies where God's presence dwelt. They remembered that. And they remembered that they had been straying from the Lord for so long. And they just began to weep. The sounds of weeping and shouting all melded together so that the sounds were heard far away, but no one could distinguish the two. When I read this, I couldn't help but think of like, if you're watching kids and they're in the other room and all of a sudden you hear loud noises and sometimes you can't tell if they're crying or if they're happy. These people were crying and shouting praises of thanksgiving and it all melded together as one. And so people who were far away couldn't even tell the difference. Isn't this a story of real life? That we can be weeping over situations and shouting praise of thanksgiving at the same time. Isn't this the tension that we live in? And this is a picture of the Christian life, of life with Jesus, of weeping over sin and rejoicing over God's faithfulness all mixed together. People are shouting about the faithfulness, goodness, and steadfast love of God to restore them. And this is mixed with the weeping over what the temple used to look like, what used to be before God's people chose to live in sin, and they were grieving the effects of sin and the destruction of the temple. Author David Platt writes this, In many ways, we have lost our capacity to weep, particularly over sin. As a result of this, there is a lack of shouting over salvation. So when we weep over sin, when we recognize the mess that we are in, and we recognize who God is and what he has done, that is where the shouting starts. When was the last time that you wept over sin, over your sin or others? Have we lost our capacity to weep? When was the last time you shouted for joy? over salvation. Now, I've lived in Minnesota long enough to know that Scandinavians don't generally weep very loud or shout very loud. But I wonder if we took a cue from the Israelites here. We don't have to carry our guilt from our sin anymore. We don't have to be weighed down by the grief and the sorrow. Why? Because we have a great high priest, and his name is Jesus. 
I've been studying the book of Hebrews in the last few weeks and thinking about what does it mean that Jesus is our high priest? Honestly, when I think about Jesus, this isn't the first thing that comes to mind. But God has been reminding me of this truth about who he is, and it just makes me want to jump up and down and shout with praises of thanksgiving. You see, the priest offering the sacrifices in the temple was just a shadow of what was to come. In Hebrews 10, the author writes that we can have confidence to approach the throne because Jesus himself entered the Holy of Holies, that place where only the priests could go. And he shed his own blood, not for his sins, but for our sins and the mess we had gotten ourselves into. Christ sacrificed his own life once and for all to take away the sins of many. And because of this, we don't have to carry that guilt from our sin anymore. There was nothing we could do to wipe the slate clean, to have a fresh start. Only the blood of Jesus could do that. Without bloodshed, there could be no forgiveness. And now through Jesus, I am so thankful that we don't have to offer sacrifices anymore. We don't need priests to access God, to enter the holy of holies where his presence dwells. When we place our trust in Jesus, his spirit dwells in us. We are his temples, his priests, and we are forgiven wholly and completely We can come to God with contrite hearts, hearts that weep over sin. And we can praise God with shouts of joy for his steadfast love. Our guilt was met with God's grace. And we can respond with gratitude. If that isn't a fresh start, I don't know what is. But I confess to you today that my first instinct is to try to do it on my own. And if I can't, then I go to Jesus. This is so backwards. We can't wipe the slate clean. Only God can do that. We can't make a fresh start, but God has already given us that opportunity, and it is called grace. It's not because of anything we have done, but simply because of the love of God. Our obedience flows from our love for God. Obedience doesn't earn our fresh start. You catch the difference? I was in a conversation recently with someone who said, sometimes I wish that we still offered sacrifices because then it would feel like I did something to receive forgiveness. Isn't that how our world operates? transactional. Like, if I do something for you, then you do something for me. Fresh starts so often feel like it's just up to me. I have to make it happen. But God in his sovereignty is the one who makes it happen. Because Jesus is our great high priest, we have everything that we need to start fresh with God, to have a new beginning. His mercies are new every morning, And we don't have to live in guilt over our sin. We can live with gratitude each day because of what the Lord has done for us. So as we start this new year, I challenge you to take hold of this fresh start effect. But as you do that, I want you to remember these three things. God has already started. First thing, God already started. 
when the Israelites got started on the foundation of the temple, God was already there. He was already there laying foundations of trust, courage, and unity. And we cannot do anything on our own. You may have worked hard in school, earned that promotion at work, or moved forward on a project, but the reality is that nothing happened without God starting first. Fresh starts often feel like it's up to me. I just have to do this. But all is grace. There's a podcast I listened to, and the author and speaker who's on this, James Bryan Smith, told a story about when he was 16, he was at an all-star basketball camp. He was a pretty good basketball player, and his goal was to be the MVP of the all-star game at the end of the week. He worked really hard. He was the leading scorer in the game. He scored 14 points. And he had a certain level of confidence that he was going to be the MVP. It didn't go to him. And I'm going to one of his teammates who led the team in rebounds and assists. He realized that basketball is a team game. That day, Smith says, he learned that it wasn't up to him to carry the team. It taught him an important lesson. He learned that this it's up to me mentality is a burden. Pride is thinking that you have accomplished anything on your own. And this narrative can be deadly. And I am with you. This is a daily battle for me as well. It pushes God out of the picture. It's not just up to me to make a fresh start. It's God working within me. It's God who has already started. We can respond, though, to what God has started. We can respond in ways that show our obedience and love. We have a role to play. We act and God acts. We cooperate with and respond to what God is doing. So I knew a high schooler recently, and she said that this year she wanted to be braver. And her friend said, I want to make better decisions. And these are both admirable things, and I believe that God puts these things on our hearts. But we can't simply be braver or make better decisions. But we can know the one who helps us do this. One of the quotes that has really resonated with me as I start 2020 is this. I don't know about you, but I can't simply muster up more love. I can't manufacture patience just by gritting my teeth and determining to be more patient. Don't you wish that we could do that, though? We are not strong enough or good enough, and it doesn't work that way. Instead of mustering up more willpower, let's focus our energies and time on asking for help from the one who has the power to change us. Let's spend time with the one we want to be more like. Doesn't that release some of the burden? of trying to be better? Because what we can do is we can spend time with Jesus. We can come to the altar, the foot of the cross, every day and ask for forgiveness because of what Jesus has done. We can weep over our sin and rejoice over salvation. How are you responding with gratitude to what God has already done in your life? I want to close today by talking about one part of this story in Ezra that's easy to gloss over. The people built the altar 
even though they were afraid of what their non-Israelite neighbors might do. Did you catch that part in this story? In the NIV, it says, despite their fear, they move forward. Is there something that God is asking you to do? A fresh start that you need to make, a response of obedience or thanksgiving, but you are scared. Starting means that sometimes we need to do it scared. Whether it's starting something, maybe you need to say no to something, and that that is also saying yes to something else. Maybe you're scared of what other people will think, including your own family or close friends. Are you simply scared to try something because you are afraid of failing? I've been there. And every time that I have decided, like the Israelites, to do it scared, God has sustained me and supported me and made a way, and he wants to do that for you. God has already made a way through his son, Jesus. God is good, and he will never quit loving you. You can choose to live in gratitude instead of guilt. How are you going to respond this year to the work of God? How are you going to respond even this week? Just take it a day at a time. Will you show your gratitude by spending time with the one who loves you beyond measure? God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you love us beyond belief. That you are a great high priest who gave your own son so that we might be able to live free from guilt and live lives of gratitude, lives of thank you notes right back to you. We pray this morning that whatever fresh start you're calling us to, that we would step into it even if we're afraid. Pray all this in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Y Church podcast. For more information about the Y Church, check us out online at theychurch.org.